This episode is sponsored by More Than A Number, the brand new podcast from ICAEW. Search More Than A Number in your podcast app to hear Louise Cooper and thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Katie Balls. This week, Boris Johnson agrees a Brexit deal, but can he get it through Parliament? Plus, who are the biggest beneficiaries from the Turkish incursion into Syria? We look at how Russia is consolidating its influence in the Middle East. First up is Brexit within reach. As Boris Johnson agrees a Brexit deal with the EU, it seems that we really may be leaving the EU on the 31st of October after all. So what does this mean for a general election, and is it imminent? Is the Brexit party still a threat to the Tories? And would the Tories still be able to win over Labour voters if Boris Johnson has delivered Brexit? To discuss, I'm joined by Paul Mason, journalist and author of Clear Bright Future, and James Johnson, former polling strategist for Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. James, as someone who's recently left number 10, do you think Boris Johnson's deal is significantly different to Theresa May's? I think it probably is. I think that um, he has managed to uh, get the kind of changes that, let's face it, a lot of uh, people were saying, leadership contenders, backbench MPs, people who have since lost the Conservative whip that he wouldn't be able to get both on Northern Ireland. The legal text of the withdrawal agreement has changed, also on the political declaration, and the will seems to have changed a little bit in the Conservative Party as well. However, it clearly wasn't enough or was too, too different in some respects for the DUP to swallow, so it's still going to be a very, very tight vote on Saturday. And Paul, on that, the DUP have said they're not supporting Boris Johnson's proposed deal, and that means he needs votes from opposition MPs and they are looking at Labour. Do you think this is the type of thing Labour MPs representing leave seats could support? We saw 19 MPs write to Brussels earlier saying that they wanted to back a deal. It's a very difficult deal for them to support. I mean, it's being branded in the Labour movement as, as the sellout deal. And, of course, it sells out Ulster unionism. Uh, but there's not many people in the Labour Party who actually care about that. But it, it absolutely does. And, it, and this does have detrimental effects long term if you wanted to keep Britain the whole of Britain in a close economic relationship with Europe, which has always been Labour's position. But the real deal-breaker for, for the Labour movement is the abandonment of the level playing field. So it's a signal, and it's very easy to, to explain this in, more, in words of a simple... You know, it's, it's, it's crap food from America, it's some cheap wages, cheap labour. This We will be the, the pound shop kind of economy on the edge of Europe. And it's, you've got the TUC, you know, openly saying to the Labour MPs, don't vote for it. And the other thing is, the the contingent thing is, if there's a three-line whip, and those 9 to 11, I think is what it will be, 9, 15 maybe, maximum, MPs do break that three-line whip, you may have noticed that the kind of leadership of the Labour Party is quite keen to get rid of a few people and get a few of its own, you know, allies into fairly, you know, contestable or safe seats. So I, if I was those MPs, I'd be thinking very carefully about doing that. It, it's, you can always say to your own constituents, look, it's not the deal we wanted. You know we tried to get a deal. It's not good enough for you. So I th- that's, where, that's where I think we'll be by, by the time they troop into Parliament on Saturday morning. And 
we are recording this on a Thursday, so we'll add that caveat in because things are moving so quickly. But one of the things that number 10 are hoping is that when EU council leaders meet tonight, they potentially agree to, to say that there won't be an extension under any circumstances. So it's just this deal or effectively no deal or perhaps revoke you know, in terms of the options. Do you think that were to succeed in that, that would increase the number of Labour MPs going for this? It would be very difficult for MPs to convince themselves that they meant it. You see, I mean, we took as, you know, you always have to take, I think, you know, Keir Starmer and his team have taken as in good faith the the EU's prior assertion that there would be no changes to the withdrawal agreement. And now there are changes to withdrawal agreement. That You know, there are actual removals and insertions to withdrawal agreement. So, you know, I think that were they to, unless it is like absolutely clearly both said and then communicated diplomatically i mean you, you know there have been labor and opposition politicians shuttling backwards and forwards in parallel to to johnson's team it'll it would have to be communicated in clear diplomatic terms and even then you'd vote against it i mean i, I don't think it's gonna you'd whip against it and, and those who said well you know i was stopping a no deal well come on you know various clps i know you know I, that wouldn't really play very well now because I'm aware some of our listeners listening to me right now could be listening on a Saturday Whoa. and we are heading to a super Saturday of votes, I think what might be a good way to talk about this is to look ahead to the various outcomes in an election and the currents at hand. So first off, let's just imagine for a minute Boris Johnson does pass his Brexit deal. James, do you think that would be a coup for the Conservative Party? Do you think that would boost their prospects in an eventual general election, whenever that might be? So I think certainly very quickly after that, you would see Boris Johnson's personal rating is going up. Um, they've taken a bit of a hit recently, particularly since the sort of prorogation drama. So I think you'd see a natural increase there. You'd probably see a conservative boost in the polls, but I don't think it'd be as massive as some are predicting. I mean, you've got to remember that, you know, a lot of the people saying Labour or Lib Dem now are unlikely to shift to the Conservatives straight away. You know, the Brexit party sort of kicking off about how it's not pure Brexit might just keep people on for long enough. The big question then is what do the Conservatives do? And I imagine they'll be very tempted to go into an election, try and get an election very quickly off the back of this boost. They have been trying that for a while, haven't they? They have indeed, they have indeed. Um, and they'll be hoping that uh, they'll be able to, you know, convince the Labour Party that they can't just keep doing this, can't just keep delaying it forever. Then the question becomes, well, what's the proposition in that election? And I would just add one warning on that, which is that, yes, Boris Johnson would have delivered a deal. Yes, he's got a domestic agenda that he can, he can talk about. But the real USP that the Conservatives have over Labour at the moment especially in the North and in the Midlands, is the message that they want to get Brexit done. In a post-Brexit election, a post-deal election, they lose that edge. And it's quite easy for Labour to bring it back to domestic issues without the Conservatives having that competitive differentiator. Yes, well, one of the examples regularly cited um, when you're making this argument, which actually is a Brexit deal could bring the Tories some problems in an election, is look to what happened to Winston Churchill after the Second World War. The fact that at the time he was seen as a hero, he had led the country, to victory, yet you had a situation where it was a Labour government that followed in that election and lots of Conservatives were very surprised. So does the electorate do gratitude? Well, let's take your scenario, which I don't necessarily think is going to be the outcome. We're going to do all the scenarios. So the scenario that, that Johnson gets through a deal through Parliament on Saturday is then... When is the election? I think you know the temptation would be to to ride high, you know, to ride the euphoria of because it is a piece of statecraft that one would have to concede that he had had, had done. But given we're in a kind of four-party polling situation at the moment, and and 
the Brexit Party, I don't think, will immediately kind of crumple like the witch in, in The Wizard of Oz to nothing. Labour's biggest worry is the Lib Dem surge. But the moment that deal goes through, and as long as Labour has, has tried to defeat it, I think Labour psychologically bounced back in a much clearer way. They, they say, OK, well, you know, there's still a lot to fight for, for a European orientation for this country and for a level playing field and for workers' rights. At this point, I would imagine the psychological damage among what you might call the FBPE crowd is, is going to be much greater because the temptation will be right We're going to, for the Lib Dems to say we're going to have a 10-year fight to get back in. Meanwhile, Scotland will have said, you know, and I think many Labour strategists are, are writing off Scotland, Scotland will say, right, we're going independent. I think it would be very easy for Labour to say, right now, we have to live with this because we're a parliamentary democracy. We are going to fight for a... A, a comprehensive trade deal with Europe that mirrors the best of Europe. And meanwhile, let's talk about jobs, schools, hospitals. And I, I think that's a no-brainer that they'll do that. And if they can put it off long enough so that the euphoria, kind of the tabloid-induced euphoria, subsides a bit, and Christmas comes and there's no election, I think, you know, if I were Johnson, I would really want to get that election done and dusted before sort of 5th of, November, 5th of December. Yep. Well, it does seem to me, speaking to various Labour MPs and Tory MPs, there is this growing sense the election might be actually be next year. Do you think on the Labour side, um, we hear a lot about the power struggle between John McDonnell <laughs> and Jeremy Corbyn. My colleague Isabel Hardman has written about it in the magazine this week. Do you think that it seems as though Jeremy Corbyn does want a general election this side of, the, of Christmas, but others in his party disagree. So who do you think is going to win that battle? Well, uh, I, you know what? It's a bat- it's, it's, it's only a battle insofar as they have choice over it. In this, yeah. this, um, and we like headlines. Yeah. OK, look, I think if Johnson gets his deal through, I really want an election early, but I know there are risks to it because of this sort of slight euphoria thing. I think that... The, the let's delay the election till after Christmas thing comes from obviously the sort of more centrist, more Blairite people because they, they, they're worried about winning it. They're not sure that there is a strategy. I think there is actually. I think that, that PLP meeting that was quite despondent was badly briefed by people who may not have understood the strategy, but there is a strategy. So I'm not sure that this kind of coalition of forces that says, right, wouldn't it be better if we just put the election off for a bit is going to prevail. Uh, but it, it it might be out of our hands and, and you know, getting in, in the sense that to get the election, you know, and they're not going to go for a 50% plus one single line bill. They're going to have to, they want to do it under the Fixed Term Parliament Act. You would have to persuade Chukka Amuna, Anna, Anna Subri and co. And, and also the DUP, do the DUP want an election at this moment? My, my, I wouldn't. I would suggest not. Actually, if I was them, I'd be pretty keen to avoid one. Can I jump? Can I jump yeah. in and just t- tackle that? What what seems to be the elephant in the room here, which is that I don't think Labour's success in this ele- in, in this sort of posted election depends on timing. I think it depends on whether Jeremy Corbyn is the leader. You know, if we look at Jeremy Corbyn's personal ratings, if we look at how much of an impact he has on driving votes away from Labour, when I was at number 10 running the polling, we saw every month, you know, when we did the analysis under under the bonnet of the polling, you know, that Corbyn was, dr- the very presence of Corbyn was driving votes away. You know, there is an argument that mm-hmm. if it is delayed yeah. and Labour does get a new leader, they may well have a much better run. I find it hard to see how Jeremy Corbyn can have his 2017 moment again. I, well, I think that that's the moot point, isn't it? And there's clearly a leadership style change going on with even the Carrie Murphy and you know, the other two advisers who were, who were moved away. I think has opened... We, we've yet to see what the new uh, kind of 
chief of staff plus plus Bob Kerslake kind of going through the, the going through the kind of spreadsheet of who works here and what do you do. We've yet to see what that what that does. And I think most people like me who are Corbyn supporters are prepared to give that a go. If it were to be clear that there is no election possible until say May and or, or March then what we're, I mean, I'm very clearly a Corbyn supporter and close to MacDonald, etc. in thinking, what, what is, again, beyond our control is what do that kind of Blairite stay-behind group do? Do they launch a kind of Jess Phillips leadership bid? Do they decide they've had enough and just leave? You know, because I think getting a deal through, which is the premise of this conversation, will be a cathartic moment for many people in politics. And they'll, they'll wake up the next day and go, well, what do I do? What do I want to do with my life? I've been clinging on here in the hope that we would do X, and now I want to do Y. And there's so many of chess pieces on the chessboard there, and it is so 3D. I, I think it's hard to predict what the Labour right do. Now, let's imagine the second scenario, because we're catering for all options with this podcast, which is that a deal is not passed in the House of Commons. Potentially, we head to an extension. But this time around, the Tories can go into an election, whenever it may be, we're not going to put a date on it, saying that they can get Brexit done because, A, they have a yeah, deal ready to go if they have a majority. And two, were that to fail, they could do no deal if they really had to. But, but they have a deal ready to go and they've defied the naysayers who said they couldn't do it. James... Do you think going into a general election, talking about a deal that the Tories want to pass, would be beneficial to Boris Johnson? Because up until now, we've heard about this people versus parliament election, which he could still argue to a degree, that's why he couldn't pass his deal. But there was the centre of, you know, we're going to threaten no deal. You do see no deal in the polls as often the favoured option of leave voters. So does Boris Johnson selling a Brexit deal in a general election campaign help the Tories? So I think this is actually, of, of all of these scenarios, probably the best case option for the Conservatives and, and maybe even the most likely, uh, depending on Saturday. It's likely by the end of Saturday that even if the deal falls that most Conservative MPs were back at, I think 90% of Conservative MPs backed at last time, I think we'll be looking at only maybe a very, very small handful that don't this time round. So the, uh, fighting an election on a deal has the benefit of uniting the Conservative Party behind um, behind a Brexit option. So that's the first thing. The second thing is is that yes, they will face pre- some pressure from the Brexit Party. But I'm not convinced that the Brexit Party voters are voting because they're particularly frustrated about the kind of deal or the kind of Brexit. When after immediately after the European Parliament elections, we ran a big um, sort of you know post mortem on what on, on what happened with different voters, and the thing that we found overwhelmingly was that most Brexit Party voters voted that way because Brexit hadn't been delivered. And they actually put Theresa May's deal or the details of a deal very low down their list their list of reasons. So though I expect Brexit Party will get a short-term boost from from uh, from uh, an election under uh, on based on a deal. They will um, I imagine that most of those will come back to the Conservatives while some Labour supporters still go to Brexit Party, and then the final thing is is that um, it just gives a um, it gives a much clearer sort of much more purposeful uh, route to go in. The best argument that works on Brexit is not people versus Parliament. It is you know get this thing done so we can yep. move on to other issues. And this clearly would be something tangible that Boris Johnson would be able to say this is agreed by the EU and gets this thing out of the way. 
And just on that quickly, Paul Ali mentioned the Ulster Unionists and why they might not be the motivating force when Labour are deciding what to do about this deal. But were the Tories going to an election saying we have a deal ready to go? We've seen the DUP today in quite strident terms saying why they don't agree with the deal, why, it, why they believe it threatens the union. Do you think that would damage Boris Johnson at all going into an election, having a, a group saying that they think this po- this deal is bad for the union. So I think on the DUP, on the DUP specifically, no. Um, I think uh, you know, polls have shown that voters care much more about Brexit being delivered than any of the details, including on Northern Ireland. Quite frankly, you know, voters uh, on the sort of uh, British British mainland, so to speak, do not have Ireland in the top at the top of their minds when it comes to voting. So I don't think the DUP matters, but elites do. And, you know, there is there is one caveat to all of this, which is at the moment it looks like the Conservative Party is uniting. But if there are prominent leave figures who otherwise don't back the deal on Saturday or change their mind afterwards and say, actually, we'd rather have no deal and are criticising this deal on the campaign trail, that makes a huge difference. Again, when Theresa May's deal was first published, actually the very first reaction from voters was after Chequers was quite positive. But once Boris and Didi resigned over that weekend after the Chequers summit, that's when people started becoming negative to it because they'd seen the elites and taken their cues. So, you know, that is going to be an important, important dimension in this in this election. Paul, do you agree with that? I would if I was Boris Johnson, I would want to lose on Saturday and find and, and fight an election in, in late November because it gives you the people versus parliament and it gives you as well no you've absolutely getting a deal changes things because the the, the fear among the kind of the kind of people who read the FT and the Telegraph, even the Telegraph here, w- w- was, I think, that we can't be a party of no deal. You know, and, and I was really looking forward to fight. The p- moment where it's being briefed, we're going to fight an election on no deal. I said, you know, bring, hold my coat, because that's, that's a gift to any opposition party. So, yeah, I, I think what you say about Ireland and, and, and what it's... how it, I think I've been tweeting threads about Ireland today because I think this is... A very significant moment in the UK, in the UK's history, because you've got it signals that by the middle of the century, you know, that the whole island of Ireland will be quite economically integrated, and that 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 middle class, that Protestant middle class, that is beginning to vote for the alliance and the UUP, which is represented in Stormont, which is going to have to be recalled, by the way. So we're going to have to have Stormont, and it's going to exist, and people will hopefully start reporting what happens in it. I think the emergence of a kind of a long-term project of, you know, Irish nationalism becomes more cosmopolitan and more accepting of, of, a, of a Protestant element to it. And unionism is in a crisis. I, I, going back to the thing, the, the scenario, it is a scenario that I hope emerges, but I know will be tough for my party. That is, we defeat Johnson and then he goes to the country. I've got a deal. Just give me a, a majority and, I'll, and let's pass it. We've got arguments and things we can do against that, but but... It's a strong argument for him. And just to wrap up what we hope is an evergreen Brexit <laughs> podcast, I will ask you very, very briefly, and I think you, you might have answered it there. So, Paul, what do you think the best scenario for Labour is going into an election? And, James, what do you think the best one is for the Tories? And we'll start with you, James. So I think it probably is this uh, is this sort of election on the deal. It unites the Conservatives. So the deal um, not being passed. Exactly, so the deal not being passed. I, I do think that, uh, I slightly disagree with Paul, I think Boris Johnson 
Sean's definite that he would definitely like this to go through on Saturday, and I think he would. Uh, and, and then he's got his own options to choose when he can have his post deal election, and they might even try and spend some more time, you know, prepping their domestic agenda or whatever else. But I think, in just terms of the crude electoral maths, I think it would be fighting an election on this deal and that very powerful emotional argument of get this done to get on to other issues compared to Labour backing a referendum. And if MPs at the last minute, you know, before this election took place, tried to put a referendum onto it, um, as, as some people are talking about, then that just gives the Conservatives another incredible argument. The, 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 I can't stress enough, you know, that yes, there are Remain voters who want the second referendum, but in the public at large, the idea that you agree a deal and then it's all good, we're leaving, we're leaving, and then you suddenly hear that, yes, it's been agreed, but with a referendum. I mean, you know, that is going to incur some, you know, quite some uh, wrath from the British electorate. And in this, this scenario you think would be best for the Tories, do you think that we would see these Labour leave voters potentially lend their votes to Boris Johnson if Brexit hasn't quite been delivered? P- possibly. Um, it's a tough nut to crack. Um, certainly uh, Theresa May tried it and didn't get uh, as many of them as, she, as she'd have liked to. It does help them as compared to being in a post-deal election where, like I said, that differentiating factor has gone. But also the other thing is, is that the Conservatives might not even need them. All they need to do is hold on to as many people from 2017 that they already already won rather than getting new voters yeah. because it's it's all about this election who falls least the Labour vote is much more split by the Lib Dems and the Conservative vote is split by the Brexit party and Paul best scenario for Labour briefly the best scenario for Labour going into an election would would I think be that either Brexit is sorted and you can simply say well we don't like it but we did fight against it and 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 that i think is a very powerful thing with the with the lib dems in places like Vauxhall where i live or or westminster you know uh, is a, is another example where you say look this this has been bugging everybody we fought against it we lost but now you know we've got a, our own agenda the other one however would be and i and i do think here i do differ with you in in terms of the analysis if and I don't think this is likely, but if the Kyle Wilson thing were achieved on Saturday, and that, that is that there is a, well, there's going to be a referendum, and it's that, so Parliament has passed, there's got to be a referendum by May on this Brexit deal, and we'll have it all out in the open. In a way, it, at whatever point then the election is triggered, whether it's November or it's March, you've got, you can say, look, Boris Johnson can always cancel this referendum if he, if he wins, but we're not going to. We're going to we're going to, to to carry on trying to heal British civil society by having that referendum and letting you decide Boris's deal versus Remain, will back Remain. But ultimately, th- there is an element of we need to get on. The, the, the referendum's in a bit, but now we've got an election to fight which won't be about that. Brexit at all because because it'll be down to you. I, I I do think I know that's the way in the minds of the Corbyn leadership that is how they're they're thinking and how they in fact rationalised the idea of accepting this position of a referendum when they opposed it only six months earlier. We shall wait and see and be back once we know the firm scenario one day. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, James. This episode is sponsored by More Than a Number the brand new podcast from the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. Next, as Trump abandons the Kurds in northern Syria, Russia has stepped in. Paul Wood, the BBC's world correspondent, writes in this week's issue that Trump's decision to abandon Americans' role of the global policeman has allowed Russia to establish a Pax Russica in the Middle East. So how have we come to this, and is this the new normal? 
Earlier, my colleague Cindy Yu spoke to Paul Wood and Dr Tracy German, defence and security expert at King's College London. So Paul, can you give us a brief overview of what's been happening in northern Syria this week? Well, briefly, President Erdogan called President Trump and said, we're coming into Syria, and slightly to the Turks' surprise, President Trump said, go right ahead. Uh, Certainly this was to the surprise of the Syrian Kurds who thought they were in a military alliance with the Americans. The Americans waved them goodbye, left with almost indecent haste, for instance, leaving behind 60 so-called high-value prisoners, that is the worst of the worst, alleged terrorists. And the Kurds then had to very hurriedly broker a deal with the Syrian regime, which they did with Russian help. So the Americans are leaving, the Russians have extended their sphere of influence. It's fairly chaotic on the ground with the Kurds shelling the Turks but hitting civilians with uh, the Turks bombing and killing civilians and uh, American influence uh, at an all-time low, I think, any time over the past 50 years. And this withdrawal just pretty much happened overnight? All within days, certainly, and maybe hastened. I saw a report the Americans were saying the Turks had been shelling near one of their bases to get them to hurry up and leave. It was... as you say, a more or less overnight withdrawal and a quite erratic decision by President Trump. As ever with President Trump, you can apply various templates to what he does. One is the Russian template, what would Vladimir Putin do? What would Vladimir Putin want? You know, the kind of Trumpist version of what would Jesus do? Uh, And in this case, talking to, for instance, a Democratic congressman, Jamie Raskin, who's for impeachment, he said that he doesn't understand Trump's relationship with Putin. It's inscrutable. But the outcome always remarkably, coincidentally, seems to be whatever Russian interests are, the United States ends up lining up with that. And certainly that's what happened in this case. Another template here is President Trump is just unsuitable to be in the Oval Office, doesn't know what he's doing. So many decisions have been like that, have backfired. In this case, he didn't understand or seem to understand the difference between the Iraqi Kurds and the Syrian Kurds, which might seem a little bit arcane, but in fact, they don't like each other very much. It's quite an important difference. Didn't seem to understand what would happen on the ground and then was threatening Turkey by tweet with destroying their economy, which was you know, obviously very different in tone from the phone call. There is a, a third template, which in this case, he is doing exactly what he promised to do in the election, exactly what he's always believed in, which is to get America mm. out of foreign wars. And yes, the Kurds were helping fight ISIS, but they were doing that for their own reasons as well. There's probably no good reason, and no good time rather, to tell your you know, trusted ally, we're leaving now. You know, It could have been six months ago, it could have been six months' time, it happened to be this weekend, it was always going to be difficult, and Trump was doing what he believes in. And Tracy, how has Russia taken advantage of this situation? Well, I think, I mean, firstly, they were taken by surprise by Trump's decision, the US withdrawal. But, you know, as we would expect, they have sought to turn events to their own advantage. It's enabled them to consolidate their position within Syria, but also more broadly to kind of position itself as a a really important power both within the Middle East, but more broadly, this kind of narrative of it being a great power that has global interests and a global role to play. I think it's been a happy coincidence for Putin that what happened with the US withdrawal last week has coincided with his official visits to the Middle East this week in Saudi Arabia and and then the UAE. And it's enabled him to, to, to look like a, almost a power, a key power broker within the region. It's also, I think, by happy coincidence, kind of 
reinforced the rift that has been emerging between Turkey and NATO. I mean, obviously, Turkey being a very important NATO ally. But what we've seen emerging in the last week is a rift within NATO, which is to Moscow's advantage, but also a rift between Turkey and the EU, which again plays into Moscow's hands and being able to kind of divide European allies in their approach both to Russia and to events um, in Syria, I think, has really enabled Moscow to to achieve some of these broader objectives that it's been it's been seeking to achieve for a long time. I mean, President Trump would say, yippee, we've just dumped this horrible problem of Syria in Russia's lap. If they want to be an imperial power, go ahead. It costs a lot of money. You shed a lot of blood. Uh, You know, it's their problem now. I'd be interested to know what you think, Tracy, of the idea that if you want to understand what motivates Vladimir Putin, it's always a good idea to ask who's making money, how are they making it, and is he getting a cut? Uh, And I wrote in the magazine this week about a character called Putin's chef, Uh, one of these sort of outlaw capitalists, oligarchs, close to Putin, who supposedly controls the Wagner group of mercenaries, which have been busy taking over oil fields in other parts of Syria. Syria, there are certainly oil fields and pipelines in Kurdish territory. And of course, now that the Syrian regime has expanded its zone of influence, they will be extremely grateful to the Russians. I just wonder if, apart from grand strategy, we ought to be looking at lower, more grubby financial motives for what the Russians are doing. Absolutely. Yes. You can't kind of disassociate the broader grand strategy with more pragmatic economic interests. There are huge gains to be had both within the Middle East, but more broadly, and Russia stands to benefit. Um, There is the energy, obviously oil and gas, but also nuclear power and then the arms trade. And there are many people within Putin's broader circle who stand to benefit and who do benefit from an awful lot of these kind of deepening ties that they are establishing the Middle East, in Africa, further afield, in Latin America and into Asia. And I think you can't split the two. There is a large element of, well, you could say pragmatism driving this. Um, This is about economic financial gain. And Tracy, you talk about these interests that Russia has in the Middle East, whether it's oil or nuclear. How does the picture look from Russia's perspective of the Middle East? How many countries there are allies of Russia and how many countries does it want to be allies with? Well, obviously, during the Soviet era, it had a a number of, of key allies in the region. Syria was a very important ally, but Egypt... And, you know, there are other states within the the wider Middle East, North Africa, who are key allies during the Soviet era that have maintained their relationship. And now we've been seeing, um, obviously, Russia seeking to reestablish its influence and its relationship with Egypt, Syria and the relationship we've been talking about there. I was mentioned just now about Putin's trip to Saudi Arabia earlier this week, and I think that is a very interesting relationship to see how that one develops because if Saudi decides to start buying arms from Russia we have a a strengthening relationship that once again looks like it's pushing the West pushing particularly the US out 
So I think there's a lot to be watching at the moment with regards not just to the diplomatic side, but to the economic side as well. I think you're right. Putin's visit to Riyadh was a sign of the new realities here. And I saw one sort of quite waggish comment that the Saudis were quite relieved to have somebody who wouldn't lecture them about Jamal Khashoggi, the journalist they allegedly murdered and dismembered. And if they start buying weapons from Russia, yes, that will tip the balance a little bit. But at the same time, while the Saudis were, I think, exasperated and rather worried by what they felt was a lack of a robust American response to an Iranian drone attack on their oil facilities, the Americans did end up sending troops. The Americans aren't out of the Middle East. I think it's it's more a case of the Russians drawing level, and it will be interesting to see what happens next. Let's not forget that the Americans were in an alliance in Syria in the first place to battle ISIS. I think the Russians will be quite happy to, as President Trump puts it, bomb the shit out of ISIS now that the Americans are pulling out. Allegedly, the battle against ISIS was won. That's what President Trump said six months ago when he first announced this by tweet. It hasn't been won. They haven't gone away, as somebody once said about the IRA. They are in the countryside, in the villages. They may not have a state anymore, a caliphate, and they may not be in control. But their personnel and their loyalists are still there. And I was getting voice messages out of Al-Hul camp yesterday. That's the Kurdish, formerly Kurdish-run displacement camp for ISIS families. Uh, apparently there are female death squads roaming around with lists of women who weren't sufficiently religiously correct. They are waiting for their menfolk to come back and break the camp open. And they are waiting to uh, to leave the camp and start doing what they did when there was a caliphate. So, you know, battle against ISIS goes on. It's just Russians and Americans in charge. And Paul, finally, how do you see this one ending? I mean, obviously, American public opinion is extremely against Trump. Everyone's pretty shocked over there what has been happening. Do you think he can change his mind on this? Or is this the beginning, as you say, of a strategic isolationism? I mean, Trump has been shown to be fairly pliable in the past, like a cushion bearing the impression of the last person who sits (laughs) on him. That was once said about a British politician. I think he is out of Syria. I think the Americans are out of Syria. It would be... Uh, too much of an humiliating about face for him to send troops back in now. And I think he'll be quite happy to say, we'll leave this. This is a foreign war. We can always, as he said by tweet, go back in and blast. Maybe there'll be an American airstrike down the road. But there is an interesting American aspect to all this, which is, you know, while these horrible foreign wars are happening on people's TV screens, in the United States, a lot of Republicans are extremely angry about this. They do see it as a betrayal. And It is now, I think, likely that the House of Representatives, led by the Democrats, will pass articles of impeachment. The kind of red line stopping that from going any further was the Republican majority in the Senate, and it still is. But President Trump has offended a lot of those Republicans, called some of their wives ugly, accused some of them of having fathers involved in Kennedy's assassination, (laughs) generally insulted others. There's a big spat with uh, Mitt Romney at the moment. Trump could be going after him, poor encourager les autres. So foreign policy is intruding on domestic policy in a big way. It is changing the calculation there. And I just wonder if, never mind what's happening in Syria, for wholly American reasons, President Trump may end up regretting this. Paul and Tracy, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. Do pick up this week's issue if you haven't already to read all the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as Helena Morrissey's diary and the interview from myself and James Forsyth with Jacob Rees-Mogg. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, why not check out a live recording of Sam Leaf's Spectator Books podcast? 
He'll be interviewing Robert Harris, the best-selling author of Fatherland, Enigma and Pompeii, live in Westminster on the 23rd of October. This event is subscriber only and to get tickets just visit spectator.co.uk forward slash Harris. If you aren't a subscriber, we can help you fix that. You can get a subscription on spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher and a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Thanks to our sponsor, More Than a Number, the new podcast from ICAEW. Here presenter Louise Cooper in discussion with thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Are businesses ill-prepared to cope with climate change? Is workplace inequality inevitable? And do businesses really have an age problem? Simply search for More Than a Number in your podcast app to download now.